Well, it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome to you, you to our uh, Leadership, Innovation and Communities of Practice workshop on behalf of CEDA and uh, the Practice-Based Professional Learning Centre here at the Open University. My name is Mark Fenton O'Creevy. Um, you're not going to see a great deal of me today. Uh, myself and uh, Colin Gray over there, um, Sue Martin, who's undoubtedly rushing around uh, behind the scenes, uh, Sophie and Michelle and so on, who are organising all of this, are going to try and stay in the background and uh, let you get on with uh, enjoying the day. Um, hopefully we've organised things well enough, but as always with these kinds of things, um, something's bound to go wrong. We'll, we'll try and fix it when it does, though. Um, the topic for today, leadership, innovation and communities of practice, um, hopefully is one that we all share a, a common interest in. And let me just say a little bit about how we've designed the day, hopefully to result in something that's quite useful to us all. Uh, we, we're starting off, we're very lucky to have uh, joining us as our first speaker, uh, Etienne Wenger. Um, Etienne, uh, many years ago now, uh, coined the phrase communities of practice, um, has written extensively um, around communities of practice, around social learning, um, has in uh, the past several years uh, spent a lot of time engaging with a wide range of organisations in very practical ways around making communities of practice effective um, as ways of generating innovation, as ways of bringing people together. Um, we're then uh, going to have Nigel Payne talking to us. Uh, Nigel, um, again, very, very practical experience in this area. Nigel was for many years uh, head of learning at the BBC, amongst many other things on his CV, um, where he was very influential in uh, setting up the infrastructure and um, the, the kinds of support that were necessary to enable communities of practice to flourish within the BBC but has since um, been uh, involved internationally as a consultant to organisations around issues of learning and change, uh, and again, brings a, a great depth of practical experience. Finally, um, we have um, Sarah Robinson um, with her colleagues, uh, uh, Sue and Leslie, who are going to be uh, talking to us about the LEAD project uh, that went on out of Lancaster University, um, and the thing that's really interesting about the LEAD project is that this was an attempt, a very successful attempt, in fact, as it turns out, um, to use a, a university as a support for learning a, a community-based, peer-based learning uh, exercise between uh, managers and owners of small and medium-sized enterprises. And uh, the idea here was to not just broadcast learning out at them or put them into classes, but to create a community which could learn together. And they're going to talk to us about uh, some of the things that they did, some of the successes they had, um, and tell us, tell us a great deal about that. So across the morning, hopefully, what we've got is we've got a natural flow from here's some of the big picture about communities of practice through to uh, here's uh, some real examples of this going on with small and medium-sized enterprises. Now, as you'll have spotted... Um, the morning is mostly broadcast style. There's going to be people standing up here talking. Hopefully what they've got to say is going to be very interesting, but it's not enormously interactive. We'll have some time for questions and answers. The afternoon is when we get seriously interactive, and what we're going to do is going to break you out into small groups, and you will see each of you got on your 
pack um, a colour badge. Uh, the colour badge tells you the small group that you're going to break out into. Uh, what you'll find uh, come lunchtime is there'll be a poster up in the foyer area that says, if you're in this group, this is where you're going to be. Um, there'll also be a group of people standing around ready to direct you to the room that you need to be in. Um, but if I could ask you to try and keep to time on that as lunchtime comes to an end, because an hour in those small groups isn't going to seem like an enormous amount of time. Finally, what we're going to do is we're going to have a panel session where we bring all the speakers back together um, and we're going to pick up some of the issues that came out in the small group discussions and have a panel discussion here up on stage to wrap up the day. What I should also mention, though, is that this face-to-face event is running in parallel uh, with an online event, which has been going now for about a week, um, You'll find the details of the website on the first uh, page as you, turn, as, as you open this uh, document. You'll find the, the website address. Some of you may even have had a look at the website already. Um, there's uh, papers uh, from each of our speakers, which give you a bit more uh, detail on some of the things they've been talking about. Um, you'll find, um, as of uh, the end of tomorrow, you'll find uh, videos of the main sessions uh, what we're also going to do is, in each of your small groups, there'll be a rapporteur who's going to write uh, a summary of the issues and themes that came out in the discussion in the group, and we'll post those up onto the website as well. So if by the end of the day you're fired up and thinking, well, we only just got started talking about some of these things and I'd like to continue the conversation, there's a place there on the web to continue the conversation. Um, and uh, there's a great number of people as well um, who, are continue, who are continuing the conversation um, on the website who haven't actually uh, been here today, um, including from around the world. Um, so it might be quite an interesting community to join in. And by the way, I should welcome all of those people who, might, who may well by now be watching this streaming on the website. Okay, without any further ado, oh, one last thing, um, because I've, uh, I'm going to get my wrists slapped otherwise. I have to do uh, two housekeeping things. Uh, one is to point out the far exits, which are there and there and uh, to ask everybody to check that your mobile phones are turned off. That's not set to silent mode, but actually turned off. The, the reason for that is that the microphones, the radio microphones, will pick up your phone going buh, 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 about every minute if your phone's turned on at all, um, and that will make an uh, annoyance, especially as we're recording these sessions. So thank you very much for doing that. Um, so, without any further ado, I'm going to introduce uh, Etienne Wenger. Uh, Etienne, if you'd like to join us on the stage. Okay. Over to you. Thank you. Good morning. Um, so, I'm going to give a little introduction to the concept of community of practice. I'm <coughs> told that for some of you it's not a, it's not a, a familiar concept. And then, and then move on to talk a bit about issues of leadership in these communities. Um, but you may be coming with, with different questions. So um, I'm going to invite you actually to, to make this interactive from the start. So that is, you know, I have my slides. I can go through them. But uh, you can also, uh, you should also feel free to raise your hand and, and ask a question or, or bring in an, an insight uh, at any time. Okay. So, uh, by default, I'll just, uh, uh, I'll just keep talking. 
but if there if there's something you you really would like to know or you'd like to clarify, just feel free to to signal that. So I'm going to talk about about communities of practice and what I call a social discipline of learning, and I'm going to try to uh, articulate what I mean by that and what that means then for those who take who take leadership in these communities. Then let me start with two brief little stories to just set the stage. Um, this is a community that we've looked at because in my own community we have an exercise that we call follow the leader and uh, we ask someone who is a leader of a community to be with us for a year and once a month we have a teleconference with that person and we try to say, now what is it like to be leading the community that you're leading? And Robert here <coughs> accepted to do that and his community is called the Myeloproliferative Disorders uh, uh, Support Group. And um, it's one of those online support groups. Uh, Myeloproliferative disorders are a, a family of disorders. My understanding of it is that the, the body is producing too much blood. It's a bit like diabetes. It doesn't kill you, but there's no cure for it. So you have to kind of live your life carefully. And really, you become the practitioner of, of your disease. Uh, about 12 years ago, Robert was diagnosed with one of those disorders, uh, started a, an email conversation with a physician friend of his, and uh, other people heard about that email exchange, wanted to be CC'd on it before you knew there were too many people. At that time, America Online was offering um, uh, a listserv to people who had a social cause. Uh, Robert got one of those. Today, you have about 2,600 people around the world who are subscribed to that list. And you tell me, hmm, there are many of those lists. On, how can you call this a community of practice? So let me see, let, let me sort of share with you the way that I, would, that I would look at it. And by the way, I'm not claiming at all that any listserv is a community of practice. I think that many of these listservs just become soap boxes for people who have, you know, not married probably and have nothing to do Saturday <laughs> night. <coughs> And, uh, um, you know, so I'm not saying that, that, that listservs equals community of practice. That's not at all what I'm trying to convey here. What I'm trying to convey is that there's a way of looking at a group and asking certain questions to see what is happening. Um, and if you think of people across the world communicating through basically email, even, if, even though it's a distribution list, basically, uh, the technology is very simple. Actually, Robert makes a point of keeping the technology simple because he says if you get too fancy, then you lose, you lose too many people. So the, the only, all you need to participate here is, is an email address. And so some people will say, <clears throat> how, can this, how can you call this a community when people's connection with each other is so thin? Just email. And I think what's important here is the notion of practice. I think one of the reasons why this is actually a successful listserv as opposed to others is that it is really focused on a shared practice. And so when these people read each other's posting on the listserv, I think what is crucial here is that they can recognize the practitioner in each other. They say, from what you are, from what you're writing, I can see that you are facing that challenge in your life. And therefore, I'm very interested in what you've just learned on Monday, 
because there's a high chance it's going to be relevant to what I'm going to have to face uh, 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 moving on. So that sense of <clears throat> recognizing the practitioner in each other and therefore recognizing a learning partner in each other, to me, is a key element of why this listserv is actually serving as, a, as, a, as an important learning vehicle for people who are, who are engaged with it. Now, there are all sorts of aspects, and you can imagine if there are 2,500 people around the world, 2,600 now, uh, uh, that not everybody is posting every day. There would be a disaster, right? The thing would implode of its own weight if you had to write, to read 2,500 2, postings every day. So, you can imagine that there are a number of people who are active, a number of people who are so-called lurkers or readers or whatever, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's probably about 60 people are active out of 2,500. So, so you're talking about a, a ratio of active people to, to readers that is, that is uh, 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 very low. Uh, and yet, I think we should not assume that those people who are reading are less, uh, uh, um, have a less meaningful experience necessarily of that community. Actually, Robert uh, told us that he received some email that, that really moved him when maybe someone says, you know, take, take my spouse uh, off the list uh, and he has an email that goes out asking for feedback and, and, and he, he hears things like, you know, I wanted to let you know that participating in that list, even though the person never said anything or much at all, was, a, was like a lifeline. So for them to just, through that very thin connection of, of, of a series of emails, being connected to a group of people who share, those are fairly rare diseases. Okay? So when you, even when you go see your, your hematologist, they may not have seen many cases of it. So for them to connect with others who share that experience is actually a very meaningful uh, uh, thing. And they would say, you know, the first thing they would do in the morning is to go and check the computer. See, what, what has my community said today? So we should not assume that only those who are active and posting are actually having a meaningful learning experience of being connected to a community like this when it is focused on that level of practice and not just, uh, as I was saying, a soapbox for, for, for people to, uh, to, to post diatribes. And actually, uh, here, Robert, as, as a leader plays a very important role. I would say, if I, had, if I had a concern personally about this community, is perhaps uh, uh, an over-dependence on Robert as, as the leader. But very artful leadership to, to keep that community focused. And he doesn't have to do much. It's amazing. You see, it's, it's very light-touch leadership in the sense that... <coughs> that uh, there is kind of almost like a self-policing. I, I remember uh, uh, someone put a, an off joke about genders, uh, uh, it, and it was interesting to see how the community, uh, in, in, in a light but clear way, discussed: Is this is this okay to, to post this on this listserv? Is this the kind of community we want to be? You see what I mean? All of a sudden, you could see how people cherish their community by the fact that there was almost like an immune system. That, that, that was generated around a posting that was, that was kind of off. There are places where, where, where Robert had to, had to intervene, but, but mostly what he's doing is helping uh, bring in information from across the... He has, he has uh, uh, alerts all over the, all over the, the net, and so he, 
he keeps focusing the community on, on, on practical issues. By the way, another thing that is interesting about this community is the range of issues that they, that they talk about. Uh, all the way from what do you do when you have an itch? Apparently, these disorders create uh, itching as, as one of the symptoms. Uh, so very practical things about, you know, is it good to take uh, uh, very low dosages of, of uh, uh, antidepressant to deal with, with eating? So very nuts and bolts things about how to live with the disease. All the way to what's the, what's the genetic research? There is a JAK2 gene repressant uh, that has some promise for the disease. So it's interesting to see when, when you en- engage the practitioners in a discussion of their practice, you see really the range of all the things that are part of being that kind of person, you know, to research, to dealing with a, with a to talking with your doctor, to uh, uh, talking with your spouse. Uh, and you see what I mean? It's like, it's knowledge, but it's knowledge as lived. It's knowledge as lived by people who, who have to be that kind of a person. And so the range of conversation they have is interesting to, uh, to see that it's not just technical or it's not just uh, 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 scientific, but it's everything. Because as a person who lived that disease, you are involved in everything, if you will. Um, so, here we have a very spontaneous community that was started by a practitioners, simply reaching to each other, uh, uh, to others, and, 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 then, and then to each other, and forming a community out of, out of a, a, a felt need. I wanted to tell you <clears throat> another story to... Um, develop a, 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 a few cases to, to explore. And this one was a very engineered community. I just wanted to, to show the contrast between a community that was uh, that started spontaneously and lived, you know, for, for not 12 years, and here a very engineered community. This is a, uh, uh, I was in Chisinau, Moldova, at a, at a meeting organized by the World Bank, uh, to bring together practitioners from different countries in a post-Soviet uh, area, uh, people who deal with public expense management and had to move their practice from a Soviet system of, of public expense management to a more like an EU system. And this community were, was a community of internal auditors. Internal auditors are people who, who do auditing, but a kind of collab- it's almost like the way I understand it. You know, you always try to understand what the communities that you deal with are doing. So the way I understand it is that it's preventative auditing. Right? You, you work with a manager and, and you kind of look at the books and you look at the, at the processes and you say, hmm, I think you are at risk here. So you need a very collaborative relationship with your client as opposed to an external auditor where your client will kind of hope that you don't see any of the problems that potentially exist. Okay? So if you, are, if, you, if you were a controller in a Soviet system and you start... Uh, moving to an internal auditor practice, you have you have a, a serious change, not only of the of, of the techniques that you use, but of of your identity, if you will, in relationship to to uh, to your client. So it's a, it's a substantial transformation. But if you want to join the EU, actually having an internal auditing practice is is one of the requirement for uh, for the government. So uh, there is clearly a need for that for that transition. And so the World Bank, uh, this was the second meeting of this community, had 
had this idea. They, the World Bank has had committees of practice internally for the, for the specialists across countries for, for many years now. And this idea was, well, maybe we should eat our own dog food uh, and, uh, and use the same process for our clients. So they were bringing these people from these different countries. And it was sort of interesting because at first, at our first meeting in Ljubljana, there was almost like a, so you mean you're not going to tell us what to do? You know what I mean? So like, <laughs> because traditionally the World Bank has been a very sort of vertical organization. So we're going to lend you some money and we're going to send our, our consultants to tell you what to do with it uh, kind, of, kind of thing. And so it took a little while for the practitioners to, say, to, to sort of re- realize. And, and I was there and I, I gave a little explanation of what communities of practice was, uh, uh, where. And, you know, after, pretty quickly they realized how much they would need to hear each other's stories. How much, in fact, it was not, how much, in fact, the, the EU specialists in internal auditing had something to contribute to the group, but in fact did not know how to do the transition from the Soviet system to, 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 to the EU system. So it was not just, it was not enough for them to just hear an EU specialist, or some people from Florida, there's an institute there also. We need, they needed to negotiate with each other. Okay, how do we, how do we do this transition? And how is the contribution of the expert to our group then relevant and renegotiated in our own circumstances? So it was interesting to see not only they, they had to re- discover a different relationship with each other of learning partners, the experts also had a different, um, there was a different expectations that they would actually negotiate the relevance of their expertise with the group in the development of a new practice, you know. And there again, knowledge to be lived. So a lot of the things that people were talking about were not just the techniques of internal auditing, although that was very much part of it, but was also what do I have to do to, uh, to be able to live that. You see what I mean? So there was some excitement in the, in, in, in the meeting, but also a lot of worry about, okay, now what, when I go back. So a lot of the things they were talking about is what kind of relationship do you have to, to, to develop with, with managers? Even what kind of legislation do you have to, to, to pass in order to, to enable that practice to be recognized and so on and so forth. So it was interesting to see again how when you bring practitioners together, the, the ability to live the knowledge that is being discussed is as important as the knowledge itself. So when you have a committee of practice, the learning is really embodied in, in an identity that can function in the world and not simply uh, uh, the technicalities being communicated. So that was to me, to, to me uh, 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 a very interesting aspect. And, but, but, but again, I don't know if you... Maybe, maybe it's difficult to appreciate how transformative that is from the point of view of the bank kind of sponsoring that process, you know. All of a sudden, viewing learning as this kind of horizontal connection among practitioners and not that vertical connection between an expert sent into a country to tell people what to do. So it is actually for an organization to start thinking about learning as this a peer-to-peer process is, is quite transformative. And if we think of, of our organization in the sort of traditional Tayloristic model of knowledge transmission, where 
you extract knowledge from practice, you transform it into prescriptions, and you serve it back. It's a very vertical view of, 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 of knowledge. And, and today, that these same organizations, and I, and I tell you, you know, uh, we were reflecting uh, right here that, that, that uh, it was in 1988 that we presented our first paper on communities of practice. And today, it's amazing to see how many organizations are actually interested in, in okay, how do we do that in, in practice? And actually, the World Bank, uh, where I've been doing some work, is, is, is almost in the second wave. Now, they had had a wave of communities of practice uh, about 10 years ago, and now they are kind of rediscovering, in some sense, what they had been doing then and, and, and saying, oh, how can we take, now take this to the, to the, to, to the next stage and, and really make this peer-to-peer connection part of the, of the very way that the, that, that the organization functions. Because, you see, you, in any organization, you're going to have silos, no matter how you organize whether you're organized by countries, you're organized by functions, you're organized by, by, uh, by products, whatever, you're going to create silos. And you need then to, to, to encourage the formation of communities in some sense to compensate for those silos. And so uh, uh, from an organizational design standpoint, what you could say is that, is that there is a recognition now, and I think that this is fairly new, that the informal is a partner in the design of the system. I think that, that in, the, in the 20th century, we had a lot of focus on the formal, and you had organization reorganized and reorganized and reorganized uh, uh, endlessly because there was such faith in we need to find the right formal structure. I think today what is, what is new is an understanding that, that, in fact, there are two aspects to design. There is the formal and there is the self-organized informal and you have to explicitly take into account. I mean, these two have always existed, but I think they've almost lived kind of separate lives, you know? And I think today, when we start thinking about knowledge-based organization, we need to see those two processes as really both uh, 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 part of the design. And as I said, I could have given you other examples of, of organizations in the public sector, in the private sector, in the, in the non-profit world, uh, that have uh, that have um, adopted this, this, this process, and and in each case, I think leadership is actually even more important in the informal world than in the formal world because leadership is, in some sense, leadership is not a position. Leadership is an attitude, and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna talk about that. Uh, uh, some more, but before I, I do that, simple definition. So, committee of practice, intuitively, is a group of people who share some interest, some challenge, some passion, interact with one another, learn with and from each other. So, if you think of those patients, they learn from each other. What do you do when you have an itch? They learn with each other. What's this jack to disease thing? Can we be partners in trying to an- interpret what, what's happening there? So, they learn both from and with each other, and improve their ability to do what, what they care about. And, 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 and note how broad this definition, how broadly applicable this definition, this definition is as applicable to a street gang as it is to a community of engineers in a, in, in, in a, in a manufacturing company. So it's, it, it, it really, even though the concept, the, the term is, was coined 20 years ago, in fact, the, 
the thing that we're talking about here is age old. It's really uh, 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 an aspect of human nature that we are now discovering as, a, um, as something to pay attention to. Yes? As you describe it, it seems like there's leadership at two levels. <coughs> when you describe community... Yes, yes. Uh, when you describe the communities of practice, it's almost as if each person in there has to be a leader in what they're doing themselves. So the auditors or the people suffering from the blood disorders have yes. to be leaders in their own sense. But then there's leadership of the community and how the community conducts itself and maintains some sort of coherence and growth. And Absolutely. Uh, actually, yeah. I would say even, even at, at three levels, and we're going to talk about that precisely. So there is leadership kind of in the community itself. There is leadership of people who take care of the community. And sometimes there is even leadership of people who are in the organization that serves as a context yeah. for the community. Yes. So I think a very important point. Yeah. There is, it's a very rich system of leadership, if you will, that happens at multiple levels. And this is something that, uh, precisely what I was going to, going to talk about now. So I think underlying this simple definition of a community of practice is what I call a social discipline of learning. And, I, and, and this model is, is a model that tries to describe what are the different aspects of a social discipline of learning. So if you, you, know, if you, if you take, take learning as a, as a cognitive process, there may be a cognitive discipline of learning. You need to learn arithmetic before you learn algebra. Cognitively, that's the discipline. You see what I mean? What I'm saying here is that there's a social discipline of learning. And the social discipline of learning is focused on those three elements that are here at the center of, of, of this model, the domain, the community, and the practice. Three fundamental elements to pay attention to. The domain. Deciding why are we learning partners? What is it that we share? And it's interesting. It's not so obvious. You know? Like, for instance, among the, among the, the, the patients, there was a hoopla at some point because someone had declared that they were going to give up on Western medicine and, and uh, go with beet juice. And somebody said, how can you say that? This is a public forum. Anybody can hear you. They can die from following your advice. See what I mean? And the whole community, then, then the whole discussion turned to, what is this community about? Is this community about anybody's opinion? Or is it about people who are following a certain a certain form of medicine. Yeah? And the community almost split. There were little letters back and forth. The community almost split on the disagreement about what the community was about. So helping a community negotiate what it's about so that it, is in, it includes the right set of issues is an important part of, of that leadership of caring of caring for the community, but it was very much a conversation that involved everybody. Okay, I think that's, that, that, that's important. In, in this case, they didn't split, but they could have. You know, it could, they could have decided we should have two listservs: one for natural alternative medicine and one for traditional Western medicine. In this case, they didn't happen, but it could have been, it could have been a, uh, an understandable outcome of talking about the domain and decided those were really two different domains and, and therefore two different communities. The community, there's a whole discipline about what kind of community does it take to learn, you know, for instance, just, you know, for, for these practitioners in Chisina to, 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 to develop enough trust 
that they could actually talk about their governments. You know, it's a very political thing, you know. And so to develop the kind of... And, and so part of the discipline of community from a point of view of learning, who needs to be at the table? And for them, that was an important question. For them, someone said, well, we should invite the managers. Since our relationship to our managers is so important, so critical to our ability to do, to engage in our practice, we should just invite the managers as part of the community. And somebody else says, no, no way. If my manager is here, I have to watch what I say. Therefore, we cannot learn together. And so there was this back and forth about inviting managers or not. You know, actually, the reason we were in Chisinau is because the community in Ljubljana had decided we're going to go to Chisinau because the people in Chisinau need a little boost of legitimacy. You see? And so we had invited the prime minister, the, the, the minister of finance to come to a session where the Chisinau person was presenting what they were doing. And so, what they decided in some sense is not to have the managers as part of the community, but invite them on certain occasions as peripheral participants, if you will. You see, this is what I mean by a social discipline of learning, of learning, is that the community aspect, the social dynamics surrounding a learning process, who should be at the table, whose voice should be there. You know, I was, I was working with a community of practice that dealt with, with, um, uh, 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 learning disabilities. And it was interesting when that community decided to have some of the kids as part of the learning process, how it changed the dynamics when the kids themselves were there and not just, le- not just learning professionals. So the discipline of, of, of who should be there in what relationships and what does it do when you have, for instance, reporting vertical, hierarchical relationships mixed with the with the dynamics of the community. All that understanding is part of what I would call a social discipline of learning. You know? And then uh, 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 that last aspect, that focus on a practice, that focus on knowledge as lived and not simply knowledge as theorized or as, or as described, to me is, a, is, a, is an important element of, of, of a, discipline, a social discipline of learning that you cannot simply cognitively extract the knowledge from practice. You have to engage practitioners with the full identity of, of, of how, they, how they are someone who, for whom this knowledge is a way to live. By the way, I think the implication of that for, for schooling, for instance, are, are, are quite important because many of our, our attitude towards schooling is that you can extract knowledge from life, put it in people's head, and then uh, uh, go out and apply so that I think there are serious questions here about, about how you organize for learning uh, when you take knowledge as practice, as a, as a, as a fundamental uh, uh, view on, on learning. Now, the four arrows that you see around it are precisely, I think, starting to address what, what you were talking about. Is that... The whole question of participation, why should I be a member, then becomes very important. For a committee of practice is not like a team. We say, you and you and you, you are in that team, that's your charter, come back and report in six months. In general, when I work with organizations, I really recommend that participation in a community of practice be voluntary because it has to be driven by the value of participation. It has to be driven by... Uh, what do I gain from participating? Not simply, I'm told to participate. So, perfunctory uh, uh, participation is, is, 
is really counterproductive in, in communities like that. But the other group that has to have an understanding of that are the groups who play, who play a leadership role in the community. So here I call it nurturing rather than leadership. We can, I think, in fact, it's leadership. But the problem with the term leadership is that, is that often people think of leadership as f leaders and followers. You see what I mean? You are not the follower of a leader in your community, you know. You are more like a partner, you know. And the person who takes leadership in a community, their role is not so much to lead and have others follow, as it is to help the community find its voice, to, to nurture this discipline of, of learning. So uh, a leader in a community would pay attention to these elements and perhaps sometimes help the community kind of engage in a debate on who should be there. You see what I mean? Or redirect the, the, the conversation to issues of practice when it goes off into, into people complaining about the organization. Or, well, well, and, uh, but sometimes, you know, complaining about the organization is a good bonding uh, process at the beginning of a community, okay? But you don't want the community to spend its whole life complaining about, about management, you know? So people who take leadership in a community really have a, they have to have a sense of this social discipline of learning and then help the community find itself, help the community find its voice, find its process, find its rhythm. And it is really more of the nurturing kind than of the leader and follow me uh, uh, type of leadership. So it's a very special kind of leadership. And I'm going to tell you a bit more about, about why I, I think this is, this is really uh, uh, an important emerging kind of leadership in organization. Then this is still within the band of the community, if you will. So what we found is that for the success of communities, you have to have people inside the community who take on that role. And I, I would say that one of the first things that you need to do if you want to develop a community from the outside is to find allies in the inside who are really, really to join you in that vision of a community and use their legitimacy from the inside. And actually, for me, the, one of the reasons that, that I'm happy about the community of internal auditors is that in their last meeting in, in Turkey, the bank said, do you want Etienne to come and facilitate the meeting? And they said, no, thank you. We can do it now. We, we, we got the idea. And they have actually, there are leaders that have emerged now from the inside of the community, and that community is starting to take a life of its own because, because uh, uh, there are people inside the community who are ready to, to take some leadership. It's still a question how long is it going to last? Would it, would it outlast uh, uh, if, if the bank stopped sponsoring people's travel? And, you know, I'm not making big claims that this community is now uh, 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 unstoppable, but certainly the fact that there are a few leaders who have emerged from the membership and are not taking, taking the lead, that's a very, very good sign for the survival of this community. Outside of the community, we have found two kinds of leadership that are very important. One I call the sponsorship, and that's a connection with a manager, an executive, someone in the formal organization 
who, you, who acts as a link if, if you are within an organization. Now, uh, in the case of the patients, there is no sponsorship, you know. But in the case of the, of the internal auditors, the, the sponsorship of the bank is actually very important in creating legitimacy for that community. I think that if there had not been the sponsorship of the, of the World Bank, it would have been very difficult for these members to tell their managers, I need to go spend two days in Ljubljana. I think they would never have allowed that, you know. But there was that sponsorship of the bank that gave the community some legitimacy, allowed the members to make a claim that they should be there, you know. But the sponsorship of their own, of their own managers was also important. So that their own managers understood, yeah, you, there's something you should do. And then the extent to which the relationship of sponsorship then leads to both enabling the community, creating the organizational circumstances to enable the community, and listening to the community enough. The, some of the frustration that I have seen among communities were when they felt that they were doing all this good work and the organization was not listening. You know, that their ideas were not finding their way into, into the organizational system. <laughs> Actually, I've seen a, a, a community being so angry because management had done an acquisition in their domain and they had not been consulted. You know, they were process designers at a big, big uh, manufacturing organization. And it was interesting because, you see, they were not saying, they should let us decide. They were not asking for managerial power. They were saying, they should have asked us. We could have told them this was a bad idea, that it was not going to work. You see what I mean? So they were not asking for formal power to make the decision. They were asking for a different kind of power, the power of voice, the power of consultation, which is, which is a different kind of power in organizations. But this is the kind of power that communities seek rather than replace the managers. As a matter of fact, they don't want to replace the managers. Uh, a community that had been asked to do hiring and firing actually refused. The argument was, you know best who is doing well, so why don't you take care of uh, uh, who should be hired and who should be promoted and who should be fired? And the community said, no. If you put that responsibility in our community, you will change the dynamic so radically that we will not be able to act as a learning vehicle with each other. They were very happy that there was someone in HR who had the formal responsibility for that. I think they would, they, they would be happy to give their advice or, or something like this, but they were not. They, they understood that the formal hierarchical accountability and the kind of practical collegial accountability that is required for learning were not so easily mixed. Okay. Yeah. And um, so that would be at the sponsorship level. At the support level, what we've found is that in organizations that take uh, uh, communities of practice as a systematic approach to learning, it is good to have some, uh, some internal consultant or some, some internal team that, that helps these communities because um, sometimes practitioners need someone to talk to about, about the social dynamics of the community, about a person who is taking too much <coughs> space, what do I do with that? 
person and so on and so forth. Sometimes just logistics. Uh, what about what about uh, uh, technology and so on and so forth? So a community that that, that acts as a as a support system. As a matter of fact, uh, um, talking about about leadership, uh, an oncological surgeon in Ontario decided that the surgeons were not talking to each other enough. So started to work with a non-profit to create communities of practice among oncological surgeons in the province of Ontario in Canada. And it is interesting that the way now this non-profit called Cancer Care Ontario is evolving is that they are learning what it takes to create, to support communities among these uh, 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 highly paid oncological surgeons. So they have developed certain techniques. For instance, they have noticed that the way that these surgeons can engage in a really exciting discussion in, is when they have a lot of data. These people love data. They love performance data in different hospitals and what procedures seem to... See what I mean? They love the data. But they don't want to spend the time collecting the data because they, they view it it's not a very good use of their time. So what the, a, techni- a, a technique that this group, this support group has developed, is to, when there is going to be a meeting, to talk with the person who is convening the meeting, say what kind of data would help the conversation. They go, they collect it. What they create is what I call high value for time. So these surgeons are willing to take the leadership in a community, but they want high value for their time. They want their time to be used to the best. And so all the legwork is done by the support, by the support team. Another thing that, that, that they've done well, apart from providing uh, technology for, for uh, teleconferences and stuff like this, they've also, this is the first time I heard that, they have negotiated with the college, the Royal College of Surgeons, a, a system by which people who take leadership in their community can actually receive continual, continuous, uh, medica- uh, continuing medication education credit or something. These people have to, to do a certain number of, of, of education credits per year to keep their, their license. So here is a, a, the support team of a community that has negotiated with a formal institution so that people who take leadership can actually get credit for, 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 for that leadership. So you see what I mean? They play an important role here it's a different kind of leadership. It's more like a supportive kind of leadership in enabling these communities. Okay. Again, uh, if there is something unclear here, uh, um, feel free to interrupt and, and, and ask a question. Yeah. What I'm missing, yeah. in, within, what I'm missing within the community yeah. is original knowledge. The community is learning by experience. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't have that experience, how does it learn? Do we end up with Wikipedia instead of, you know, Chambers Dictionary? What, what, how does the, how does regional knowledge that they don't already have get put into the community from which they can learn? Well, I think there are a number of processes that, that can make that happen. Some processes have to do with the community seeking knowledge from the outside. So, for instance, uh, in Chisinau, there were people from the EU and, and, and from Canada and, and, and from Florida who were bringing external knowledge into the community to, 
to kind of shake the mix, if you will. But I would say also that the, the practitioners themselves, when they were reflecting on how that knowledge then would, would work in their own context, were in some sense generating new kind of knowledge. Right? They were generating new kind of conversation they should have with their managers. They were talking about the kind of legislation that they should prepare and so on and so forth. They were comparing stories from different places and together kind of extracting, well, I don't know, I don't know how radically new that was, but there was certainly not, a, not knowledge that existed anywhere before they had actually engaged, in, engaged with it. So, uh, I think there are many, many ways in which, in which communities uh, uh, are places for new knowledge. One of the ways is that if you are if you are working with a team right, and you have a new idea, but the new idea is not quite ready for prime time, often your team doesn't want to hear about it, right? Because the team has, has a goal, they have to accomplish it within a certain budget. So a community then can be a place where you can bring in an idea that's half-baked and your co-practitioner will say, oh, that's interesting, we should think about that. So that's, that, that I have seen happen in, in communities. And the other ways that, that communities uh, uh, become places for, for, for generation of new knowledge is when they interact across communities. And as a matter of fact, at, at the World Bank, recognizing that, they have created, they have uh, used a process uh, called an innovation desk. Um, they had, actually that was, that was in the past, but now we, we are in the process of reinstating that. They had what they called knowledge fairs. So the, the different communities would have a little booth in the, in, in the hallway of the bank and visit each other. And they had an innovation desk. And the idea was that when communities bump into each other, they may have brand new ideas. Yeah. So uh, there was a story about, about a group that was from transportation, early childhood and women's issues. Three communities that had come together to, to start thinking about, about issues of, of, of school transport in, in developing countries. So there was a, a desk where they could ask for seed funding to do a project that cut across their different domains. So I think when we think about communities, it's also important to see communities not as isolated entities, but as, as nodes, if you will, in a broader system where the boundaries themselves can be both places of misunderstanding and places of, of, uh, of trouble, but also places of radical learning. You know? um, actually, this, this theory was born in a place that was intentionally a committee of practice with a lot of boundaries, bringing scholars from different disciplines who were at each other's throat for the first nine months. You know? It was interesting, but it, it, it ended up being very, very productive. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Paul Coyne, Emerald Group. Um, I was just wondering, just as a follow-on to that question, are there any ways in which communities of practice can retain the knowledge that's been generated over a period of time? How is that content kept for new members, recorded yep. and passed on? So you would, ha you would find a range of communities uh, uh, 
with respect to that. Some communities are very, very careful about keeping things. Like, for instance, a, a simple technological way that some communities do that, that they have a conversation space, but they also open a wiki. And whenever they, there is a pearl in a conversation, they simply put it in the wiki. So that's a, that's a way to create almost like a summary of what we've discovered so far that is kept for newcomers or for people who want to go back and, 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 now some communities are, are, are even more intentional than that. They, they will have a small team that has, uh, that, that will, that will, uh, articulate a so-called best practice or something like this. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, so some communities keep a very good record of what, of what comes up uh, in, in, in a conversation and some are proactive in saying, we need, we need to form a team to go study that and come back to the community. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, in that community about mental health and, and learning disability, that's one of the ways that they function. Is they can only meet once a year. So they, they create little projects and they form little project teams that are going to go explore an area and then bring it back as a, as a, as a mini report for the rest of the community. So yes, uh, uh, documenting what, what a community is learning is an important part of the, the, the cumulative uh, process of the community. Uh, John Knights from Leadership. Um, one of the things that seems very interesting here is, is how people learn to behave and relate in these communities. And it seems from your descriptions that it, at this point in time it's more trial and error as to how they, how they learn to work together in each community. And I'm just wondering if there is any, uh, have you got any experience or any involvement in, in how people can more effectively learn at an early stage of how to, how to relate and communicate and behave in these communities? Huh, that's interesting. I've been involved in sort of doing it in practice. I've never been involved, I've been involved in, in, in sort of courses for people who take community leadership, but we have never been involved in a course, for instance, on how to be a member of a community. Whether that would be a good idea, I don't know. Uh, because I'm not sure it's something that can be learned outside of the, of the doing of it. So probably what happens is that people who are very good at leading communities are very good in some sense at modeling Actually, one of the, I, I can see that I'm going to be cut off, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I, one, one, one thing that I want to say is that it's more important to think instead of one kind of leadership, to think about an ecology of leadership. There are all sorts of leadership roles that members and, and, and leaders can take. And so you can see here, uh, I don't know if these slides have been distributed, but you can, you, you, you can for yourself look at some of the roles that, that, that we have, uh, uh, that we have articulated. But uh, if you think, I, I call these people social artists, okay? People who can do what you would like to, to do, but they do it by, by creating that space. And one of the, uh, uh, one of the important things that they do, that's why you have to have a leader inside the community, because they model the, the inquiry behavior, and they can do it. I've seen people, I tell you, I call them social artists because they really, like an artist who created this beautiful statue, they are people who can create these beautiful social spaces 
where people can actually have a transformative experience of, 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 of engagement. But it takes, for instance, building trust, you know, is a, is a really important part of, of how people can behave in these communities, right? And building trust in a community is not something that you can do by doing a ropes course or, you know, they have this kind of trust-building exercises. That doesn't work too well for communities. What seemed, that's what seemed to work well is to have someone who is a very uh, well-recognized practitioner kind of say, you know, I have a problem too. You see what I mean? So by, by, uh, by opening each other's problems up to others' uh, inspection, you, you over time create a context in which people can really do some very deep learning, you know. But whether that could be, whether we, that could be trained outside of the, of the doing of it, I'm not exactly sure. Actually, that, that would be interesting to, to discuss. You know, are there, are there fundamental skills for participating in communities like that that can actually be taught? Actually, I don't know. I, I, and I would be interested in, in, in hearing what you, because many of you, I think, are, are uh, uh, learning leaders about what you, what you think about that. Because I'm sure that, that some, some companies would be, if, they, if there was a way to do it, some companies would be interested, you know. But there's something kind of like, you see, for instance, I, 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 I do a lot of workshop with, with community leaders, and they always expect me to tell them the techniques. And I think that we have learned a few things, you know, like, for instance, this idea of, of having a legitimate practitioners open up a problem as a good technique to get the communities to realize what a learning system it is and what trust can do. But in the end, you know, the good leaders that I have seen, there is a kind of genuineness about them. You know, they're kind of like, they're genuine learners. And it's contagious. It's that contagion of, of being a genuine learner that really makes those people effective. You see what I mean? In some sense, there's no trick. You know, it's like, and there are little, you know, techniques that people have developed, uh, 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 um, you know, like if you have a teleconference with people on, 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 uh, on, uh, on the phone, for instance, I've seen people develop uh, putting little balloons. So you put a balloon around the room for each person who is on the phone. So they have a visual presence. So there are all sorts of little techniques we can talk about. But in the end, I would say, that the, 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 the fundamental technique is genuine engagement with the learning because that's the thing that's going to open up other people to also join you in that, in that inquiry. Well, I, I promised I'd help you with the time management issue. Okay. So <laughs> I'm going to do that. I, like everybody else, I'm sure I could uh, listen to an, for another hour, uh, but we'll have more opportunities to interact with you during the day. Okay. Um, so thank you very much. Very We're going to have a little interlude while we swap a microphone across and swap a connection from one PowerPoint machine to another.
Uh, but don't go away because it's only going to take us two or three minutes. But feel free to talk. We'll shuffle around for a little bit. Uh, and we'll have a coffee break after the next speaker. Five minutes late, but I'll finish you five minutes late. Okay, well, it's my great pleasure to introduce Nigel Payne. And uh, without any further ado, I'll hand you over to Nigel. Okay, thank you, Mark. My mic should be on, slides are going, and so we're ready to run. I thought that was a, a fantastically inspiring talk by Etienne, and I, want to, I really want to start by paying tribute to three people. Etienne is one of them, and from my own personal experience, there are a lot of people that you meet or you read about who kind of name things, and they get celebrity from naming things, but they actually add no value apart from naming something. And, and what Etienne did with Communities of Practice wasn't just name something, he actually legitimized a whole process within organizations. And, you know, I owe him a, a huge debt of gratitude because around that concept of social learning, we built a huge infrastructure in the BBC and, and it changed the nature of the organization. It fundamentally changed the nature of the organization. And I'm not saying none of that would ever have happened, but what I'm saying is that, that Etienne made it hugely easier by legitimizing it, by giving a structure, uh, and ultimately by allowing us to, if you like, show the rest of the organization what we were trying to do in the early stages. And it was not easy, I have to say that. And I, I think probably my job is to be a bit more warts and all, so, and, and to be a little bit more unclean in terms of uh, how we developed communities of practice. We didn't do it in the neat, official way. We did things that were slightly messy and dirty, and we probably did it wrong, in inverted commas. But I think ultimately, it was all part of a, a learning experience and engagement with the organization. So that's, I, I really should pay tribute to Etienne first. The second is just to Brenda Gawley. We're in the Open University. Let's talk about the Vice-Chancellor. Brenda had an article yesterday in The Independent, which some of you may have read, and she's talking about, it, the headline is, Is Education 1.0 Ready for Web 2.0 Students? And it's basically about the way that technologies have changed learning. But what she's actually talking about when you, you bury down is something more fundamentally linked to what we're talking about today. She says, it means also that these millions of people and networks that make up the Web 2 experience have given a whole new meaning to the term community of scholars and its impact on the production, dissemination and storage of knowledge. And then later on, she says that um, 
understanding is socially constructed through conversations about the content, through grounded interactions, especially with others, around problems and actions. I think that phrase, grounded conversations, is something I'd like to cling on to because that's a very important idea and it's something that we took very seriously in trying to engage an organisation in having a conversation with itself. And that might sound totally trivial, but it's actually quite profound. And that, that issue about knowledge and how you create knowledge, what we found in the BBC was hidden wells of knowledge that simply were not emerging in the normal course of things. And we tried to tap in to those hidden worlds of knowledge. So we never ever had a problem in terms of how you get at new knowledge. Are you just, just turning over the old ground or even... even um, uh, centralising and legitimising bad practice and, 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 and poor knowledge. And, and what we found was, if you've got a good, resourceful, intelligent community, where they hit those barriers, someone will go out and find out stuff. And so we had, we had people who would say, we don't know anything about this. I know Sonny. I'll go and talk to their camera people. I'll come back and report back. And they would go away and they'd find something for the whole community. Whereas traditionally, the BBC was full of individuals who found out things for themselves and saw part of their justification as a human being being on sharing as little knowledge as they possibly could and really building their career around being incredibly selfish about contacts, knowledge and so on. So this was not just about communities of practice, it was about cultural change. That's very important. And the third person, I, as by way of introduction, I'd like to pay tribute to is Ewan Semple. Ewan ran this for me. He ran this operation for me. And Ewan was nothing if not persistent. You know, when the IT people said, we're not having that stuff on the network, we'd build our own network off the network in order to give people access to it. And, and when one piece of software crashed and burned, we found another one and ported everything across. And Ewan was a, a model of the, the, the person at the heart of it who didn't try and hector or define or tell people what to do, but enabled. He enabled that environment to take place. And now all of that team, that rather large team of the BBC have now gone, but that is the way of organisations. They ebb and flow, they come and go. But what happened in the final stages was that those very same IT, that very same IT infrastructure, which had been so incredibly hostile at the beginning, took it on. They just took it all on, built it into the bricks, if you like, of, of the infrastructure. And in, in many ways, that, that wasn't something, and certainly not me, and certainly not you, and we didn't see that as being, how dare they do this. How, now it's successful. How, it was, that's the way to go. Because the only, the only way, ultimately, of, of um, keeping the whole thing alive and letting it grow was to have it mainstream. So we went from not just skunk works, but you know, we were out somewhere out here in the organisation hardly visible right into the heart of it. And, uh, and that was a real tribute to success. So um, I want to share with you some of the things we did and, and just to talk a little bit about um, how we did it and the mistakes we made and what we learned. And uh, if you want to continue asking questions, you're very welcome to do that. I'm quite happy for you to interrupt me. I'm easily interruptible. It might not appear like that, but I am actually easily interruptible. The flow... Just a few pictures to start with. You know, I don't know how you feel about the world out there, but I, I find it hard not to mention the kind of economic position that we're in. And in many ways, I think it, it's not saying, well, this is not a time to mess around with all this stuff. I think it's the opposite. This is absolutely the time 
that we, we get involved in all this stuff. And if you're, you know, if you're the, the captain of that ship, that, that if you think you can deal with that all on your own, you're probably naive and mistaken. I, th- I think that where you're pooling knowledge, where you're drawing on the best of the organisation or the best of that of the group, you end up with with taking better decisions and being able to guide through um, approaching storms and, and rocky and rocky rocky places. And, and we certainly found that where we believed and trusted the wisdom of the crowd rather than the wisdom of the, the person who was supposedly in charge of that, we, I would say, almost inevitably made better decisions than when we, we left it to you know, the captain. So I, I think it's absolutely legitimate to be talking about this on a day like today. I haven't seen much in the way. I haven't listened to the news for an hour, so another three banks have probably collapsed because <laughs> we've been talking and even here, in, in that sort of environment, that, that if, if that person had been empowered by a knowledge of a community, he has a, a, a probably a better sense of being of surviving than if he's sitting there all on his own, going, "Oh my God, what do I do now?" And, and we had many, "Oh my God, what do I do now?" moments. You know, you know BBC was an organisation, it's a 24-hour organisation. Things happen very, very fast when you're when you're broadcasting. No one thanks you for blank screens, um, misconnections or fluffing line. It's an organization under huge pressure. And to be able to share practice and to build communities of practice was by far the most effective way of improving the overall quality of what we did and setting higher and higher and higher standards. I remember after Live 8, you remember where they broadcast all over the world, uh, live concerts, we got a, an email from someone in the US, the, the head of the technical team in the US, and the, the, the email simply said, there's really good, there's great, and then there's your guys. And I thought that was fantastic. And that was a tribute to their expertise and also their willingness to share that expertise. Uh, and you can't pin that wholly on communities of practice, but, but you certainly can take a little bit of um, a little bit of credit for that. The, the other issue which seems to dominate, uh, it dominated us, it dominates many of the organisations I now work with, is just that simple word velocity. Speed is increasing. The, the speed to be able to make decisions and do things right. And, and you have to turn on the head of a pin almost. And, and if you're running Lloyd's TSB or, or HBOS, you know, that, that if you like, one organisation managed to turn much faster than the other. Uh, and in many ways, the rest is history. And the velocity is increasing. It's not decreasing. And it will continue to increase. And if you're not drawing on the, the, the knowledge, experience, and the quality inherent through the organization and trying to ride off the back of the few or just to simply ignore the people and, and what they know inside an organization, you're going to lose out. So I think that's very important. And if you're here, then probably you shouldn't be here. No, it's too late. We can't help you with the communities of practice or anything. Once you're in the car crash. And a, a lot of what we were trying to do was avoid the car crash. Or if it happened, to make sure that we learnt something and shared that knowledge around the place. And um, the BBC, like many other organisations, was horrendous at learning from mistakes. Mistakes were never mentioned. And mistakes stigmatised people. And mistakes were things that you tended to 
avoid at all costs and hide and cover up at all costs. And yet, one of the great things that happened in some of those communities was, was the beginnings of openness around some of the magnificent cock-ups that the BBC had proudly been part of. Some of the greatest cock-ups in the history of broadcasting, I might add. Um, and all the way back to the launch of BBC Two, which was the, probably the worst launch of any channel in the history of broadcasting. So that, that it was very important to talk about success, but it was also very important to talk about failure. And you can only talk about failure amongst people you trust. You can't talk about failure amongst people you don't trust. So that building that network of trust and familiarity was an incredibly important part of what we did. And I suppose my basic philosophy around this is, is fairly simple. That's my bike. And uh, many people think organisations are bikes. In other words, you can take the wheels off and oil them and take the chain off and put it back together again. And when you put it back together again, it works better. With a bike, I think that's absolutely true. You know, I take it apart a few times a year and it always feels better, rides better whenever I, I, I put it back together again. But I actually think organisations are much more like frogs. You can take them apart and you can put them back together again. They tend not to function quite the way that they did when you started. And you know, if you look at things like business process engineering, which was based entirely on the theory of, of organisations as bicycles, uh, they, it sounded great in the 80s and 90s, but how many of those organisations even survive now and how many of the catastrophes that happened as a result of ignoring people and, and ignoring people's need for conversation and knowledge sharing and so on. So I, I prefer to think of organisations as frogs. And I think that that sort of social networking model that we created um, enhances that and respects the fact that organisations are quite sensitive and quite complex and have souls and heartbeats and you destroy the soul of an organisation at your peril, I would argue. And that part of, the, part of the legitimacy of what we were doing was about cultural change, trying to make the place more innovative, trying to increase the philosophy and trying to build in more creat creativity in an organisation that had as its mission statement to be the most creative organisation in the world. And for the experience of most of the 27,000 staff in the BBC, creativity was about 19 down on the list. Um, and number one was about bureaucracy and, and doing, doing what was appropriate to stop being beaten up. So we had to change a culture. And, and Ewan sent me this picture. Ewan Semple sent me this picture the other week. That, that's what it was about. It was about networking, not just making connections. And, it, in, and there's a profound shift between... Obviously, they're trying to sell something and they, they're getting at LinkedIn. I think we've all got that. Yes, thank you very much, Zing. But the point is that it was very much about a networking model and one where you needed to put people together from different parts of the organisation who had common interests. And we ended up with probably well over 300 communities of practice. Some of them were very important, some of the technical ones, some of the advice on things like editing and programme making were really at the heart of the BBC. Some were trivial, uh, there was one called For Those Who Mourn the Passing of John Peel, which had about 11 members. And in some ways, we didn't care. If someone wanted that and there were a group of people who wanted to talk about the passing of John Peel, 
then that was okay. We, we, we saw that as a legitimate byproduct of the huge amount of energy and knowledge that was being shared around some of the other. And some of them had hundreds of, uh, hundreds of members and probably still have got hundreds of members. But there was no stipulation. It, it didn't say it had to have 50 or couldn't have more than 150. Or The, the key thing was it had to have a leader. And we gave some help to leaders. We gathered leaders together to share their own experience. So we had, a, if you like, a community of practice, of leaders of communities of practice. And that, that was extremely helpful and got us up to speed quite quickly. But essentially, it was once we'd enabled, it was a self-governing framework. You did what was appropriate and you built your community in the way that was appropriate. And therefore... By definition, some flourished better than others. And we didn't really panic about that. And I suppose one of my messages to you today would be, don't panic. That that if you try to over-engineer, you try to get too precious about making too fast progress, or you worry about some of the trivia that comes around it, then you're going to have a hard time. And because organisations are... Frogs. You can't tell it how to behave, and it doesn't always go to plan and uh, practice. And, and this is another thing, I believe, essentially, that we're, we're moving away from pyramids to pomegranates as organisational structures. And we found hugely that the community of practice enhances this kind of model, this more horizontal model where groups align with each other and that the organisation is the sum of those groups rather than the, the big person at the top and uh, a lot of very little people at the bottom who make no decisions can do very little apart from what they're told. So I, and, I, and I'm not pretending the BBC is a modern, modern organisation. It's not. But we're cert- we were certainly attempting to move it along in that direction. And we were also trying to get at this box here, or this circle here, that... that Oftentimes, we were quite near to agreement and near to certainty. And in those circumstances, process is very important. Structures and process, whatever it might be, making a program, being, being a camera person, you know, that, that, that we could easily tell you how to be a good or a bad camera person. And we, we, we had hundreds and hundreds of camera people who were trained through the BBC. It, it's not going to change anytime soon or... Smaller cameras, lighter cameras did change things, but we adapted to that very quickly. The real issue for us was as we went far from certainty and far from agreement. And there we needed something which we called in the BBC extraordinary leadership, not ordinary management. But it was all about innovation, connectivity, diversity. And at the point of extraordinary leadership, that was unbelievable in a way, unbelievably where the communities of practice almost justified their existence single-handedly. Not down here, not just the ordinary stuff. The ordinary stuff was very important. We shifted a lot of information around. How do you do this and what happens then? And Can anyone give me some advice around? So there's, that was the, the kind of day-to-day. But it was here that the real value came, when no one particularly had an answer. And therefore, everyone had a view and you could balance the views and come to something approaching agreement. Not always, 
but in many circumstances, come to something approaching agreement. Because this is what it was really about. About trying to move from a shaping to a framing culture. And trying to get leaders to frame, not shape. Because the days of shaping are over. It's too complicated. It goes too quickly to, to be able to shape, to know everything, to be in control. And how do you manage an out-of-control environment, an out-of-control organization? The answer is you frame properly. And a lot of the frames could be set by those communities. They were able to operate effectively outside the community in that framing model because they'd understood the nature of framing from within that model. So in terms of people, there maybe were between eight and 10,000 people involved. So there's a lot of people involved at various levels, at various times, in, in, in communities of various sizes, sometimes people in multiple communities, some only in one that they were very passionate about. But what it did was it brought to the fore the people in the middle of the organisation who no one really acknowledged or recognised. They suddenly became, what I was saying to um, Etienne this morning, we, we deliberately went about creating heroes in the organisation. And heroes were people who did extraordinary things, often with very ordinary support and very ordinary resources, and did it not for the glory, but simply to help keep the organisation going, to help deal with issues that were confronting, and to have those that, that good practice shared, transmitted around the organisation, and give people a bit of recognition, spurred others on, so that it, it was... Slightly cynical in a way, but it was also incredibly powerful were to, to make people heroes who were sitting somewhere buried in deeply, deeply, deeply down in the, you know, one of the 153 offices that the BBC had in the UK alone um, and probably has something approaching that now, maybe not quite so many. And it continues. This is, this is a new community of practice around audiences and creativity, based copying Facebook, basically, saying, Facebook seems to work. How can we copy that structure and that form and build a new community? So there is, a, as we speak, a big, large community around audiences and creativity, creating new ideas, new program ideas internally, based around audience need and knowledge of audiences. The BBC was very, very good at segmenting and gathering data about every aspect of its audience. So the, the, what Ewan and I and many other people created back in the, the early part of this century, now, you know, 2008, it's still a part of the fabric of the place. And I think that's extremely important and um, heartening, to say the least. But it's, uh, it, it couldn't really be any other way unless the organisation was to completely change its nature and change its evolution. So what did I learn? Just, just six little points there about what I learnt about um, setting all of this up. The first one was you can't force a group and say, Bill, you'd be a really good... And I think you should set that. Occasionally you can hint, but ultimately the groups form themselves and they chose their leaders. And the leaders changed. You, you, there were some one or two examples of some fairly at the time, traumatic bash-ups where a, a new leader came through and, and took over and usually did a much, much better job, particularly if the group didn't seem to be 
gelling or moving forward, someone would emerge. But we didn't stop that, encourage it, start it. It happened. And don't panic. That, that things are, we, we allowed things to evolve, and sometimes they evolve painfully slowly. But there was a tipping point. Gladwell was absolutely right. There's a point where it gets noticed, and suddenly you go from 100 to 5,000. Suddenly you go from who cares to your big news. And, and it was unpredictable when the tipping point occurred. And to try to force it would, would never have worked partly because of the culture of the organisation, just partly because people don't like their arms twisted. They like to do things when they want, for reasons that they've chosen. Um, the climate, we tried to create a climate where this would be successful, but also we used it to create a climate. So the, the, the environment, the culture of the organisation was important as any kind of framework or piece of software or rules and regulations. It was quite significant. And we did recognise and celebrate success. And we did capture learning. And you know, we used the intranet so that if there was a really important piece of learning, we'd extract it and we'd place it somewhere else where you could find it. And we used, we used um, folksonomies. So we let, let anybody tag anything in the way they thought appropriate. So that the useful stuff just rose to the top through sheer volume of, of attention. And things that were maybe more specialist sunk somewhere down to the bottom. But you could always find it, or mostly you could always find it. And that was a big issue. Uh, search became an increasingly big issue. But fundamentally, we, we, we looked for what was helpful, and we allowed people to gather it, use it, tag it, and put it into the, into the ether of the organisation. And we shared good practice, formally and informally. And what that meant was that we did have formal moments where we would bring people together and say, what, where are we? What's going wrong? What's going right? But mostly, we shared it informally. And we, again, we'd use other parts of the intranet to show what was going on, to explain what had happened, and to, to if you like, produce small case studies that help the organisation understand the kind of changes that were taking place and, as a byproduct, encourage people to make use of what was available and encourage them to get involved as well. And usually when we had a little bit of a flutter somewhere in the organisation, that would shake out hundred, a few hundred more people to get involved. And we tried to avoid complicating things. We didn't use the term communities of practice because we thought it would piss off as many people as it, as it, as it inspired. We tried to de-jargonise and we just had groups coming together, knowledge groups, expert groups, whatever, whatever they wanted in some ways to call themselves. And we tried not to over-analyse or make too big a deal of things because the last thing you want to do is over-egg the cake and make a fool of yourself by saying, you know, this is the most important thing in the history of civilization, and it collapses the following morning, almost by definition. So we were very careful to stand back and let things evolve and emerge as the culture evolved and emerged. So that we had that, I suppose, maybe it's a natural occurrence in organizations where what we were doing was changing the culture 
but the culture was changing and allow, in allowing us to do what we did. So you, you had to have an organization that was open to that. And then at the point of takeoff, the culture could begin to emerge and move towards something more sensitive to the depth of knowledge in the organization and more willing and um, more empowered to share that knowledge and build and make decisions on the back of that knowledge rather than work through the, the existing hierarchies. Uh, and it was a very hierarchical organization, a very, very hierarchical organization with ten, ten levels of non-executive and then, and then two executive levels uh, and then a, a, a directorate on top of that. And you did have people, we called it gradism, which I think they call it in the civil service, where people would say, oh, I can't tell you that because I'm only grade eight. You have to be grade nine. And, and, and communities of practice blew that away entirely because no, no one had a clue what grade anyone was and it was totally irrelevant. So you'd have communities of practice with people who were grade six. I don't know why, I don't even know what that is anymore. So, uh, running a community which had you know, executive grade people on it and no one said, oh, isn't this six? It was just what you did and we just got on with it and that was part of what we were trying to do. So I suppose, you know, if, if I can set that in a slightly broader context, you know, we, we, what we were, were doing was um, moving away from these kinds of things, trying anyway, to move away from something that was very much front-loading, very much about division of labour in subjects into a, 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 a celebration of learning from and within the organisation and, and celebrating the fact that there were learning opportunities in the BBC unique anywhere in broadcast, broadcasting. We never, ever stated that until then, that this was one of the USPs of being on the staff, is that you ended up, by almost by definition, a lifelong learner. But it wasn't just about front-loading. And we tried to create collaboration around broad areas, not specifically narrow subjects, and try to boundary span, you know, that's a familiar terms now, but we did genuinely try and break through so that people who made documentaries, talk to people who made children's programmes, who talk to people who made drama programmes, again, you think blindingly obvious, but not at the time in the BBC. And in fact, they're almost, someone described the BBC as islands, and each island had a different status and hierarchy, and the higher the status, the more attempts at boarding the island by pirates, and the more attempts to keep the pirates off the island. And the islands were sometimes close, but sometimes very far apart on the ocean. We tried to link them, we tried to build some bridges across those islands, and celebrate diversity. Diversity became a big, big issue. And we found the more diverse the community of practice, the more diverse the team, the, the more successful. They made the better decisions. They got much more quality learning and much better knowledge. And focusing on, as I said before, focusing on creativity fundamentally. And these hubs of energy and hubs of action. And um, I'll stop in a, in a few minutes, but I just want to share one or two other things with you. But, you know, I took that from Ken Robinson, you know, the, the idea that, Great learning is about information 
plus entertainment. If it's all entertainment, you don't learn anything. If it's all information, it's dull and boring. Fair enough. But we kind of replaced it to this. That the best stuff was when we had information within the community. The community became a really important way of building learning, of transmitting information, and of enhancing the, the whole process or the processes that went on in a complex organisation. And that sense of community probably hardly existed in the way that we made it tangible. It did exist in that there were strong teams, particularly outside London, local radio teams and BBC Scotland, very strong cultural team. But the idea of communities around digital cameras, communities around new kinds of editing, communities around um, uh, targeting at a particular (coughs) audience segment. That that was entirely new and and became rich and um, empowering, I think, would be the honest word for the people who were involved. And as I said, all age groups, um, right across the organisation, a diagonal slice through the organisation, and as it became bigger, then the, the diagonality, if you like, extended. So that, and that usually meant that it went up the way, because already it was working down the way. So my, if, you like, if, one, if I have to sign up to what I tried to do as the learning leader in the BBC, it was, this was it, really. That was my, and you can see how in those big shifts, you know, from a very conventional learning operation based around courses and programs and residential centres and face-to-face and, and with very little going on apart from that and, and with a culture where, you know, if you've got 75,000 happy sheets all showing that, that um, everyone thought that what they'd attended was good or very good, you know, that was enough, that was the only evaluation you needed to conduct and, and that courses were controlled by what the the trainer wanted to communicate, not by what the audience needed or what the organisation needed, or even what, what, no attempt at prior knowledge so that everyone came in and got a, got a um, vanilla version of everything, assuming you all know nothing. I am the expert here and I'm going to teach you. The fact that you've been making programmes for five years doesn't mean we're not going to start at programmes basic 201 because there's one person there who hasn't been making programmes. So we bore people, we waste time, we waste resources. So we tried to create learning environments where knowledge was shared and where there was a free flow of knowledge continuously, 24 hours a day, 24-7, in communities. And beyond that, to build the values and attitudes around the the nature of the organisation. So if you like, even though that was, they were crudely five objectives that I took on, in reality, that almost sums up the way the whole organisation was moving. And that's not because you know, I defined the way the organisation was moving. It's quite the opposite. I interpreted the way the organisation was moving and tried to help it move in the direction that it wanted to move because I thought it was incredibly important that it did that. And, and we did it for this reason as well. This is, this is uh, Robert Kelly who uh, has been doing this research for, for decades really. And what he asked was, what percentage of the knowledge you need to do your job is stored in your own mind? And in 1986, when he started, that was the, the answer. So in a whole range of jobs, 75% of what you needed was up in, in your head. 
So people were kind of pretty much self-contained at that point. In 1997, he did the research. And it had plummeted between 15 and 20%. In 2006, he did it again. And it's less than 10%. You know, so that the, the need to talk, to have access to the networks, to be part of a bigger community, whether that's you online or you talking to someone, became extremely important. And, and my view was that we were a networked organisation. Everybody had a PC on their desks. Desk, increasingly, they had a laptop because everything was wirelessly networked eventually. That I had to exploit the fact that that network existed and make it available for learning as well as for all the other things that it was available for, like you know, SAP and email and, and all the other millions of bits of information that were circulating by the second around the organization. So we, we, we kind of got a chunk of that network and, and held it really for learning rather than for anything else. And we, we kept hold of that. You know, that, that became a perfectly legitimate use. And we broke away from managers telling staff, what the hell do you think you're playing at? You know, that's just, that's not work. That's messing around. To the, the notion that, that sharing knowledge, gaining knowledge, asking questions, having conversations was actually work. That was okay. That was all right to be seen as work. But that was very painful in certain parts of the organization, I can also tell you. So, you know, but... But we, we, or even the Director General, will be wittering on about the wonders of knowledge sharing. And meanwhile, people will be beaten up in their own little area because they were trying to do exactly what they'd just been told was wonderful by the Director General. Or, or told that if, you know, if you've got time to do that kind of stuff, you'll be first on the redundancy list, my boy or my girl. So it, it was a real cultural wall that we had to, we had to attack. And... Us, and, and uh, that's a little quote from Gardner, you know, that, that, and it's true. And that, that's true of me, and it's probably true of everyone in this room. Now, I, and if you turn up to do A-level maths and said, oh, I'm just bringing my computer and my databases and my network of associates because we work together on this kind of stuff, you wouldn't get very far with Excel. So there's a whole bunch of issues around, you know, how we test and legitimize learning. And it was the same with, with us. You know, we still had diplomas and certificates, and, and, and we, we still awarded qualifications. Uh, and how that fitted with the, the, the experts that we were creating. You know, it was, was much more akin to the Meister model in Germany, in a way, rather than front-loaded diplomas and certificates that, that people carried with them. And we, I never cracked that one. I never, I never managed to crack that one. It's a, it's a really hard one to do. But I, I think I'll stop on this slide here. I have more, but I'd rather stop. And, and that's... That's where we were going. That's from my friend Wayne Hodgkins, who works for um, an American company. Is currently at the moment somewhere in the Pacific uh, on a boat, still emailing and blogging and, uh, and communicating almost on a daily basis. But that, that notion that if you can get that collaborative conversational connection going, somewhere in the middle here, you know, something quite special is happening. And, and I, I, I would certainly bear testimony to that. But they all have their problems. That, that those areas, it's, it doesn't come together like, rather like those circles come together. Just neatly move them across the screen and hey, they overlap and boom, you've got the, you've got that star in the middle. Each one of those uh, has a story of, of difficulty and failure. But overall, 
once we brought all those things together, something quite exceptional was going on and, and something that really was out of control, you know, that no one was in charge of all of that. And that was the best thing of all, in a sense, the fact that no one was in charge. And once it started, it was almost unstoppable. That scared quite a lot of people in the organisation. But for me, it was like a miracle to watch. I thought it was the most exciting thing I've probably ever been involved in in my life, is to see an organisation just coming out of the ground and blooming uh, simply because we put those three things together. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. I think we've got two minutes or so for... We've got time for a couple of questions. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone wants to challenge me... Right. Yes, one there, one, two, three. Yep, start, start with you. Oh, were you Is sorry? Were you, uh, no. no, sorry, all right. Um, yeah, I'd like to challenge you. Go on, then. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I agree with everything you say about organisational development and learning and so on and so forth, but, but I wonder about the hard edge to it, the performance, yeah. because... In my experience, the quality of what I received from the BBC has not improved. Mm. Um, so where's the connection? And at the end of the day, it, it may be a little bit indulgent on how nice it is to work there yeah. rather than the sure. customer stakeholder. Yeah, that's perfectly fair, a perfectly fair, a fair question. My answer is to you that in that period, the BBC went from running essentially a couple of terrestrial channels and uh, a number of radio stations to running eight channels to increasing dramatically the number of national radio stations to transforming local radio. And it did that with no additional staff and hardly any additional resources. And my argument would be that that a a huge part of that ability of the organisation to remake itself and to deliver enhanced value for you you as a a license fee payer was uh, not, you can't take full credit, but you can certainly take a part of the credit. So so that that knowledge did come out and did legitimise itself in terms of of what was offered to the the viewer and listener. And and you're absolutely right. And I I would say, I'd take it even more on the chin and, and say, if that wasn't happening, it does become self-indulgence. And, and it is a, is a self-indulgent organisation. It does have, you know, it does do things that, that would seem bizarre, you know, to, to the rest of the world with your money, essentially. But I, th- I think in this case, there was always that focus on how on earth are we going to manage that. You know, the, the BBC took a failed technology, which was uh, digital terrestrial, from, um, from ITV, essentially, and they completely rebuilt it. And Freeview now, with... With, you know, if you remember what was there before, where it froze in the, you know, in the middle of programs that, that often you couldn't get whole channels for a whole evening, it created a stable uh, and exciting platform that was expanded exponentially. Now 40 television channels and about uh, 20 radio stations on, on Freeview, for nothing, Freeview, obviously. And, and a lot of that was using the best engineering brains and, and trying to share that knowledge around a technology that, that up until that point, the BBC had only limited knowledge of. And it had to do that under a vicious timetable. So, you know, there is another example where, where the old BBC couldn't have handled that, I don't think, or it would have taken a lot longer or would have demanded a lot more money. So, second. 
Yeah, good morning. Mark Watkinson from Hay Group. You mentioned Hi. your uh, communities were made up of multidisciplines. Yes. Were there any particular disciplines that worked better um, within communities and other disciplines? I'm thinking about the behaviours and the professional backgrounds all coming together in a complex mix. Yes, I, I think that um, it's a very good point. And people are very defensive, uh, I suppose in many organisations, defensive of their particular discipline and therefore slightly um, superior about their discipline. And uh, where it worked best was where, where you had um, groups built around program making, where there was respect you know, between writers, producers, directors, camera, uh, makeup, you know, even design, all of those things. They could come together and share knowledge much easier than, for example, the real issue was when you tried to bring in um, some of the support areas, when you tried to bring in the finance people and you tried to bring in HR people, then you started to see a little bit of a hierarchy where, you know, we don't necessarily believe what you say because you're only a, an X or a Y. And that was quite challenging. And um, one of the ways we tried to deal with that was to, we put people into parts of the organisation. So we take an accountant and we, we put him or her into work with a programme team for a month in order to, so that people, they both realised that the other group hadn't got horns. And that helped. But the, the natural forming of groups was much more around those, those disciplines knocking against each other in the real world anyway, rather than discipline here, discipline there, we just bring them together because there, there, there was some tension. And, and it could be quite hurtful sometimes where people felt delegitimised if that's the expression. So it's a very, very good question. There was another one. Yes. Okay. Thanks. Neil Sampson. Uh, I'm interested in the political landscape here. Yes. Because you're talking about implementing something. Yes. Also, roughly 60%, 70% of your people weren't engaged in this process, if I work out the numbers roughly. So you had a, a minority of people really getting enthusiastic, and I can understand how that can drive things forward. Then it butts up against middle management, where you get a vast amount of apathy uh, and challenge to their personal identity. Yep. Can you just explain a bit more about where the big rod was coming from? Uh, yeah, uh, that's, another, uh, that's a very good question as well. I suppose I've got three responses. The first one was that, that because of the nature of the network, everyone was involved, was touched by it. So that, for example, that the, the, the site on the internet, which was called learn.gateway, still managed to be the most visited site as the, the, the number of people using Gateway went up to 85% of the organisation were using it on a regular basis. I took it over, it was about 12%. So we, we, we really moved the, the, the big numbers behind that kind of programme. So therefore, even if they weren't directly involved, they were indirectly involved, maybe taking a bit of insight or uh, you know, a bit of knowledge away. So th there were benefits that they could see even if they didn't put much into the benefits. So you had a, 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 a minority, I agree, generating and, and a majority having some of the benefit of, the, of that generation, even if they weren't involved in the process. In terms of uh, uh, leadership, then there were, there were clear guidelines given about behaviour, how we expected middle managers to behave. And ultimately, we, we had to have sanctions so that, that people were taken aside and, and explained in no uncertain terms that this blocking within this area was actually holding the organisation back. And, and we, we took some quite difficult and unpleasant decisions at times. But you know, 
Having said that, it was still hugely difficult to monitor what was actually going on in the bowels of the organization in Cumbria or something. Uh, and therefore, uh, some of the, sometimes there were big, serious blockages caused by people who didn't like what was going on and saw that this threatened their control. And often it was the local bits of the BBC which were the most difficult because there it was the, you know, the king or queen in his or her castle. Now, if you had 30 staff where you, everything came through you, you may, and suddenly your staff are engaging with a whole group and team of experts and saying, why can't we do this? And what about this? And have you seen this? So that became very threatening. So one of the things that we would consciously do is we'd go, and we'd go up to a place where in Nottingham, where it was working, we make a little case study about how it worked in Nottingham. And then we put that round the regional network and say, hey, they're doing that. So we try to ease the pain. But uh, uh, success, probably 80% success. So there was still a hard core that are probably still there now, still doing damage in the organization. But it's, it's really hard. But you've got to confront it. Not everyone is, um, shares your views. And I think that's a bitter pill to learn in this life. But it's a, a very important pill to swallow. Okay. Thanks, Lucian. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Well, we're going to take...